I got a question cut off by Snoop Dogg. That doesn't happen every day. Normally, you'd get a little bit annoyed with somebody cutting off your question. Then you're like, oh, he's a multi-platinum recording artist. I probably need to stand down. It's the closest I've ever come in my life to causing like a big scene because I almost scrambled, strangled that damn puppet. Welcome to The Full Story, USA Today Network's podcast that goes behind the scenes in journalism. I'm Jim Lenahan. And I'm Shannon Ray Green. For any journalist, Jim, there's covering an event and covering a big event. Covering events, lowercase e, as you know, are a regular part of the job. You go, you observe, you talk to people, you report. That's right. But when you cover a big event, the capital E event, that's something else. Sure, it includes all those basic elements that you just described, but there's something more. There's an adrenaline that comes with all the attention your story is getting, with being part of a big media horde with battling other reporters for position or maybe outthinking them for a unique angle to take on a story. And if you're a sports journalist, there's hardly a bigger big event than covering the Super Bowl. That's right. It's been a couple of weeks now since the Denver Broncos beat the Carolina Panthers in Super Bowl 50. And so this felt like a good time to maybe circle back with two USA Today reporters to get their take on how that big event is covered. Yeah, we talked with Lindsay Jones and Tom Pelissero, who gave us the full story about the Super Bowl. It's very enlightening. There's this feeling that I always get when up the Super Bowl, whether it was my first year or, you know, through Sunday night when we we're at Levi Stadium, where I just always feel like I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time because there's so much you need to be getting in so many places you feel like you need to be. Um, so you... You know, I think the more times you do it, you kind of map out a game plan of exactly where you need to be. Um, this Super Bowl was maybe not the best the best example of the logistics. It was the most challenging Super Bowl logistically of any of the ones that I've covered because the teams were in Santa Clara and San Jose and the media were, we were all in downtown San Francisco. And that's, if you don't know your Bay Area geography, that's 45 miles or about an hour of driving. So that meant getting on buses from downtown San Francisco at 6 a.m. to get to Santa Clara for the media availabilities at 8 a.m. So there were a lot of logistical challenges where this year especially, you know, you felt really separated from the teams, the coaches, the players, all of those kind of things when you're, once you were in San Francisco. Um, you know, other Super Bowls in New Orleans where everything is downtown, you're, li- you're likely to see the guys, you know, especially early in the week. You know, you might see players, um, coaches, you might see them out at restaurants, um, you know, wandering the streets, you'll see their families around. That was definitely not the case this year. Distance was something that you just had to deal with. Because if you were going to go down to the Panthers or the Broncos availabilities, you're talking about an hour-long bus ride each way to say nothing of the time spent waiting for the bus and whatnot. But that's all, in my mind, that's relatively minor. I actually thought that from a logistical standpoint and even more so a staff training standpoint that San Francisco did a really good job because my number one thing that bugs me about not just at Super Bowls, but NFL stadiums in general is you can ask 10 people who ostensibly work at the stadium where to go and none of them will have a clue what you're talking about. Where's the media entrance? I don't know. You'd think that would be part of their training. The other thing I would say that's different about covering the Super Bowl versus just the NFL in general is 
guys are required to be available once after the game and once during the week. So twice a week, and they can do their seven minutes, whatever it is with the media. At the Super Bowl, they're available this year three consecutive days or four or three out of four days, depending which guy it is, for an hour each. You end up walking away. I stood and listened to Vaughn Miller for a half hour one day, and you walk away with like 10 different things that during the regular season you could write up as a, a short blog post or something. They just talk and talk and talk and all this different stuff comes out that, you know, there are some things that are probably lost you know, that nobody ever wrote about because at the time there might have only been two people standing there to hear it and one of them was a, a Japanese TV crew that just wanted to compare the size of their anchor's hands to Von Miller's hands, which did happen right before Snoop Dogg dropped in and asked his own question. <laughs> Which that also, that did happen. That's another weird thing that happened. Yeah, that was all. I got a question cut off by Snoop Dogg. That doesn't happen every day. Normally, you'd get a little bit annoyed with somebody cutting off your question, and you're like, "Oh, he's a multi-platinum recording artist. I probably need to stand down." The most memorable thing I wrote the entire week was actually spun off of one of those how people react to things they see on TV things. At the end of, end of the NFC Championship game, the the Panthers had scored a touchdown. They went up by twenty some points. And they flash to the Panthers owner's box. Everyone's going crazy except Jerry Richardson. The owner is sitting there completely stone-faced. And it's not the first time that we've seen sad Jerry Richardson at a, at a big moment. So I took the time just over the course of the week whenever I'd have a Panthers player alone. And one of the veterans, you know, guys who have been around the longest, who just said, how many times have you seen Jerry Richardson smile? And I got some amazing answers from guys who have been on the team for seven years and said like three times. So that just became a story it's something nobody else was doing and it's not newsy it's not important but it's kind of funny I knew nobody else was possibly going to be thinking of that so you know sometimes it's you got to entertain yourself a little bit and hope that in turn you entertain the audience yeah I mean my favorite story that I wrote of Super Bowl week and the one of what I wrote that got the most traction that kind of for days was still getting picked up was I wrote about um, the, the practice squad receiver who became, who was Peyton Manning's kind of private receiver. It's this kid with long curly blonde hair. They call him sunshine. And um, I kind of took their story as a way to kind of spin forward about Peyton's, the journey that he was on this year and the rehab that he went through. Um, and then of course, you know, the, the fact that Peyton bought this kid a suit because he didn't, have a suit so I mean I and, and luckily I got that I did that story early enough in the week because by the end of the week everybody else had written about it and that's what happens too is because you know you ask Peyton Manning something in his podium and it gets in a press it gets in the transcript and then people will see it so it, I liked writing that story it was another one of those weird logistical things I wrote it on a bus it's 6 30 in the morning and it ended up being the the most read of anything I wrote of the week and I'm still seeing it now somehow it'll, it'll pop up in my Facebook feed where, you know, I think it was something about Peyton Manning, like we said, that people hadn't read yet or a different take on, on him. So, you know, I think that it's just where the, the stories that you think might just be like, Oh, I'm just going to send this quick post about this practice squad receiver, or we're just going to write, yeah, I'm just going to write about grumpy cat, Jerry Richardson. Those are the ones that end up sticking out in your head or somehow catching on with readers because it's different than what they're seeing everywhere else. Now, there's one thing that happens on Super Bowl week that is unique in covering football, or probably any sport for that matter. It used to be called Media Day, but this year it was moved to a later time and called Media Night. It's unusual in that the media already has access to players and coaches throughout the week, so really Media Night is for media that doesn't normally cover sports, or as Tom calls it. Clown show. <laughs> 
that's all it is. Yeah. No, it's it's all it is, and you just have to take it for what it's worth. If you're expecting to do serious journalism at media night, you're probably going to be let down, you know. But everybody is there. Every coach, every player, they're all. If you look hard enough, you should uh, be able to find all of them. So, yeah, no, but it's it's there to be to be a spectacle. And I thought the the league did a really good job putting it on this year. Um, the way that they introduced the players beforehand, they changed around the way the podiums were shaped. They made it look almost like a rock concert where all the podiums were facing the same direction, which is both for TV as well as for the people who are willing to pay money to go in and and watch media interviews. It, it exists for Miss Universe to dance around with players. That's that's what Media Night is. Yeah, and it definitely um, of any of the ones I've been to, this was the most that existed strictly for television. Um, it was it's not productive if you work for USA Today because this year especially, it went from I think five the the Broncos went from approximately like five fifteen to six Pacific time, and then the the Panthers went after that. The Panthers finished around eight o'clock Pacific time, which it was well past our news newspaper deadlines on the East Coast. So it was strictly a, a television event. And if you're sitting at home, you know, at seven o'clock watching NFL Network, I'm sure it was very entertaining because they had their reporters everywhere. They were they their NFL Network reporters had better access than we did. I mean, they were able to get in front of the kind of barricades. They were, you know, they kind of were able to cut in cut in front. They didn't have to wait in line to get questions. And helps when their reporters are guys like you know Marshall Falk and Deion Sanders and Michael Irvin so of course these guys are going to get you know up up close and personal with the players um, get the first questions and five you know five questions in a row with Peyton Manning which you know I'm not getting five questions in a row with Peyton Manning so it's definitely a made for TV event and I think the amount of money that TV deals have and the relationship the NFL Network obviously has with the league I think that's only going to continue where it's you know, not a great day for reporters like Tom and I to get what we need, but it's great for the league to promote itself. And you're right about, I mean, it's the spectacle. Again, that that's the story on that night, unless something else happens that overrides it. You know, it's it's Rob Gronkowski reading erotic fan fiction. That's what Media Night is. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's pretty much sums it up. I mean, I got stuck. I was in the this is on my Instagram stuff too, but I mean, I was at the front of the barricade, like pinned in between, you know, a reporter that I know on one side, um, a, a reporter from Mexico with the puppet on the other, and then like four television cameras directly behind me. I mean, it's the most claustrophobic thing. And the puppet was turned facing the other way. And the guy who had, was holding the puppet was speaking in Spanish into the camera till finally a, a report, another reporter and I like, yelled at the guy like you have to stop because he was talking so loud with his puppet in Spanish that we couldn't hear Peyton Manning it was only four feet away from me I mean it's the closest I've ever come in my life to causing like a big scene because I almost scrambled strangled that damn puppet I mean it was you know it's I was trying to get some actual work done and the puppet wanted to be a puppet I don't know the Spanish but, puppet, the, but it's built for the puppet you know, the puppet has more business being there than you Lindsay. He, he really did I mean I at that that was the point we had set up a situation a system where I was going to be in there for 15 minutes and then I was going to tap out and Lorenzo Reyes was going to come in and I was going to go other places and I was like after almost losing my mind on the puppet I was like I gotta go I'm I, waved my white flag and cut out because I just I, I mean could you imagine I would have been like all over television for strangling a puppet I mean I probably should have it would have been great but he also would have deserved it
That's a really funny story, and <laughs> yeah. it definitely would have made the news, don't you think? Absolutely. Vines over and over of, of that moment. If he did, if it got the best of him and he just had to put an end to it, it's yeah. just hilarious. And it's n that's something I never could have pictured or imagined would be part of our colleague's life covering the Super Bowl. I know, I know. It's just great. Now, the media does, in a way, sort of become part of the story around the Super yeah. Bowl, too. And this year... That involved Cam Newton at his post-game press conference after yes. the Super Bowl. And really because he was shunning the media. He gave some very short answers to a few questions, and then he just sort of walked off. Yeah, Cam Newton caught a lot of flack for that. But Lindsay and Tom told us they saw it completely differently than most people did because because Tom was actually there. He was on the other side of the curtain behind Newton and was asking questions to Bronco players. And part of what made Newton upset was what he was hearing the Broncos talk about. And of course, they were talking about beating the Panthers. Right. Well, it was an unusual setup. And I remember walking into the room and thinking, man, there's just a curtain separating the teams here. Um, because you had to walk past the Panthers area to get, get to the Broncos area. And so Chris Harris came to the podium in one corner. I was writing the story on, in essence, the game plan, which if you watched the game and if you kind of tracked how the Broncos were playing, it was very apparent what they were doing, which is they were saying, our corners are better than your receivers. Our pass rushers are better than your tackles. So we're going to play single high safety, attack the line of scrimmage, put everybody in the box and don't let the Panthers run. That, that's what they were doing. And so I asked Harris about that, and I more or less framed the question that way. And Harris said, yeah, th that was it. It was, can you all throw the ball? We want to show. We want, we want to know. Can you all throw the ball? Well, it was a good answer from Harris. And he was honestly, it's, it's far more of an indictment on the Panthers' offensive tackles and the receivers than it is on Cam Newton. But it was only the following day, and it's funny how you find out about these things, but it was only the next day that I saw on Twitter Somebody had tweeted something about, here's what you, here's what Cam was hearing at the time he walked out. Because I had heard that, that Cam gave a very short press conference. And sure enough, I heard the answer. I go, that's right. That was, that was what Harris was saying to me before I took off out of there. Um, you know, it's just, it's strange how those, those parts fit together. It, it was a, it was an unusual setup, but, you know, I, I talked to Matt Mayoko who covers the 49ers. He was on the Cam side and he said that, uh, when the 49ers were in the Super Bowl against the Ravens a few years ago, it was the same thing. It was just a curtain, and there were occasions where 49ers players could clearly hear what, what the Ravens were saying on the other side, which in a big emotional moment, they're going to be bragging, they're going to be talking big, they're going to be saying all the things they did well, which in turn is saying all the things that the other team didn't do well. You know, it's it's kind of the equivalent of it's one thing if you – you have to tell your wife that somebody else got the big promotion at work. It's another thing if the guy who did get the promotion standing five feet away telling his wife and bragging about it. That, that's, what, that's what this boils down to. Yeah, and I, I, I was walking around the kind of the bowels of the stadium before the game, and I found where that room was because there have been, there have been other Super Bowls, and this is one of those lessons where it's been after the game and you're on deadline, and I'm, I feel like I'm running around not knowing where to go. And like Tom mentioned, people don't have any idea of where to direct you. Um, so I kind of, before the game, I took the chance to, okay, here's where the locker room entrances are. Here's that meter room. And I, I went into that space where those podiums are because I was Snapchatting for our USA Today Sports Snapchat. And um, a bunch of the league PR people were down there. And I was like, this is awkward. This is going to be awkward lady, er, later. And um, we kind of talked about it. And sure enough, it ended up being 
exactly that way. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily blame Cam Newton for being upset when he heard it. Um, and then also, I know afterwards, Chris Harris felt really badly about it because he didn't, as much as the Broncos guys afterwards were kind of talking a lot of trash in the locker room about the way that Cam behaved, about the Panthers, how, you know, loud they had been throughout the week. Chris Harris is not the guy that would get up in a guy's face and make him feel bad. You know, I don't, I don't think he wanted Cam to hear him say that. He just happens, he speaks really loudly into a microphone. When you're covering a press conference like that, and I know you, you two weren't in on that one, but you've been in a lot of them. Um, sure, you want the athlete or the coach or whoever it is to be open and you know to, t- to talk a lot. You want to be able to get your quotes. But isn't there an element with that Cam Newton experience that you're getting something more than that, that you're getting like a real honest reaction and, and real emotion, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I ever want is a guy to be authentic and to be real. I'd rather I'd rather him sulk and show us how pissed off and upset he is than sit up there and be fake, I guess. And I mean, that's all we can ever want from anybody, whether it's the Super Bowl or a Wednesday morning during, you know, April voluntary workouts. Just be be real. Let us let us see part of your life. Let us into what you're thinking and feeling. And you know, last year during the NBA Finals, when somebody freaked out that Steph Curry had brought his kid Riley Curry with him, and oh, it's distracting us from doing our job. This guy is letting us into his life. He's letting us see part of him and his fam. You know what makes him who he is, and we're going to criticize him for that. I mean, that's that's just crazy. I just want to. I just want guys to be authentic. We can't take ourselves so seriously. If you show up to the press conference, I'm not going to generally have any problem with what happens once you get there. Honestly, I, I, yeah, I would rather have the raw, real reaction than somebody who plays everything off. And I've been around those guys. You can be 0-10, and you're asking about whether or not the team needs to make a quarterback change. The answer is, oh, we're, we're not even thinking about that. We're playing football. How can it get better than playing football? You're out here making a living, doing what you love. Okay, really, that's it. I hope you're not saying that in the meeting rooms, because that might explain why you're 0-10. Right. There's a great scene, obviously, in, in um, the movie Bull Durham, where he has to work on his cliches, right? And I just think, you know, as a reporter, that's the last thing you want, is people just work on their cliches. Right. And that's, I mean, that's one of Peyton Manning's favorite movies. And he breaks out the Bull Durham quotes um, as often as he can. And that's one of the challenges, I guess, of covering covering Peyton Manning is he's so in control of almost all of those press conferences where sometimes you wonder exactly how much of what you're getting is real and how much he ever lets people in. Because I don't think it happens very often. I mean, he what we saw all of Super Bowl week was kind of a, a masterclass in PR in saying stuff and being charming and of having anecdotes and um, one-liners, but not actually revealing too much of himself or saying anything of real substance. Um, so those moments that you do get with, with a guy like Pate Manning, where you actually see like, okay, that's genuine. That's a genuine emotion from him. Um, you kind of have to appreciate those because they're, I think they're few and far between. Our thanks to Lindsay Jones and Tom Pelissero. We'll be back with more stories about journalism throughout 2016 on The Full Story. Please subscribe and rate or review the show on iTunes. You can also listen on SoundCloud or Stitcher. Thanks for listening.